This podcast features three supposed adults who definitely use adult language. They're also supposedly writers who are definitely not procrastinating by making this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to No Bad Ideas, the storytelling game show where we take the worst ideas from the internet and try to turn them into stories that are actually good. My name is Gabriel Urbina, and I am your first Bad Ideas host. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm your second Bad Ideas host. And my name is Zach Valenti, your third Bad Ideas host. And today we are joined by a special guest star here in the Bad Ideas Thunderdome. They are the creator of The Path Down, writer, an actress, a semi-business person, it's Leslie Gideon. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Hi, guys. It's good to be here. So great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Leslie, before we sort of jump into all of the craziness that we will bring, do you want to just like tell the folks at home what The Path Down is and why they should be listening to it? Yes. So The Path Down is a limited run slice of life sci-fi about grief, privilege and superpowers. I wrote it from a personal place of exploring the long-term effects of grief mm. through the lens of superpowers, um, mental health, the power of family is a big theme in there as well, really connects to both, as I said, my personal grief, as well as my heritage as a Latina and a lot of food, the connective power of food that heals all. Amazing. Everything in it is wonderful and beautiful, and you should definitely be listening to that show. In roughly about 45 minutes, once you're done listening to this episode of this show, for anyone who might be joining us for the first time, this is the show where we find the worst ideas on the internet and see if we might be able to turn them into the pitch for, say, uh, maybe a good movie or maybe a good TV show or maybe a good Sunday newspaper cartoon. But just in 10 minutes, how can we make the worst get as good as it gets? Um, and Sarah, I believe that you are our first worst purveyor today. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I am. And I'm very excited about this one because we did our sort of behind the scenes swapping, Zach and I, of do we have the same idea? And we don't. But Gabrielle and Leslie might know what I'm about to inflict on all of you, which means. And and, and to be clear, Sarah didn't say what the idea was. She just kind <laughs> of said a couple of like vague ghostly terms. But <laughs> we have a good idea. I think she said enough. Yeah. Well, I will give you the headline now so that we can all be on the same horrified page. Dear listeners, this comes to us from TheVerge.com and the headline reads. Disney is developing planned communities for fans who never want to leave Holy its clutches. shit. Epcot Center is real. It's mm-hmm. finally time, baby. Walt's dream. That's so <laughs> creepy. That was his dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so for anyone who is not aware of Walt Disney, one of Walt Disney's dreams, I will read this article. Disney has launched a new business. <sighs> For fans who can't bear to leave the pristine, family-friendly world that the corporation has nurtured its through its theme parks and media ventures. 
quote, story living by Disney will operate as part of the company's theme park division developed, uh, developing a series of master planned communities for residential living designed by Disney's creative staff and offering the same pampered tranquility found in its resorts. Quote, picture an energetic community with the warmth and charm of a small town and the beauty of a resort, said Disney Parks Experiences and Products exec Helen Pock in a promotional video. Only one location has been announced so far, a community of 1,900 housing units named Coutinho that will be built in the city of Rancho Mirage in California's Coachella Valley, a location where Walt Disney himself once lived. Important detail. Concept art for Coutinho shows villas, condos, and housing complexes clustered around a 24-acre grand oasis where Disney says it will (laughs) offer clear turquoise waters powered by the crystal lagoons technology developed at its resorts. Amenities will include shopping, dining, and entertainment, as well as a beachfront hotel and clubhouse hosting, quote, Disney programming, entertainment, and activities throughout the year. Now, members of the public will be able to visit Cotino by purchasing day passes, while a section of the development will be set aside for residents aged 55 and up. It does not say why that they're uh-huh. setting the olds aside, but they are. Casual, uh, you know, yeah. for the nudist beach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, prices for accommodation and financing options have not been announced, and Disney also has not shared when construction will begin or when residents might be able to move in. As reported by USA Today, though, although Disney is branding and marketing these communities, it will not own, build, or sell the homes. Instead, it will be partnering with third-party developers to carry out this work. Um, this is also not the first time that Disney has explored residential developments. In 1996, it opened the gates of Celebration Florida, a master-planned community where near Walt Disney World Resort. And in 2011, it opened its luxury Golden Oak Resort in the same state, where prices for homes originally started at $1.6 million. And famously, Walt Disney himself wanted to develop a utopian city of the future named Epcot, which stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. There's a little bit more in this article about the details for Cotino um, and what residents can maybe expect, but I, I think we've, we've gotten the gist of story living. And so I want to bring to you gift wrapped the dystopian fiction future of, uh, of 2022. And I will put 10 minutes on a timer. Okay. For the record, this is a terrible idea. Yeah. Holy shit. It is not the bad idea that I thought you were bringing Sarah when you said that it involved Disney. So for that bad idea, dear listeners, tune in next week because uh, it's coming. It's coming. (laughs) I do just want to say in five years from now, the YouTube video essays about how this town will fail are going to be amazing. So good. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, the folding the folding ideas episode about this is going to be tight. The documentaries <laughs> on every individual, the different documentaries on every individual streaming service here for them. As for how we can turn this into a story, my first thought is kind of like Stepford Wives via Bioshock. Whoa. So, uh-huh. so for those who may not be familiar, basically the concept of Bioshock is someone attempted to make a completely separate utopia away from the rest of the world and you as the player come in after the fact see that it is in ruins because it imploded and you have to piece together exactly 
why it fell apart. Mm-hmm. But kind of uh, all, all the, the prop- all the propaganda is like still running, and so you know you're kind of hearing have, seeing like, all the these film strips, and, yeah. yeah, that are like you know, welcome to the city of tomorrow, where everything will be perfect forever. But it's now oh, like in the middle yeah. of these like ruins, you know, destroyed. Oh, yeah. All city. the trailers, all the trailers for. Are we thinking video game or movie here? That's a good call. I, I'm curious what you what you had in mind with Stepford Wives because that might determine whether and we go movie or game. I would say maybe let's think through the beats that could be a movie and if it ends up being cutscenes, mm-hmm. I'm fucking happy. Fair yeah, enough. Because I, I like the idea of switching back and forth between the bright ideals of like, say, opening day, the first few months, switching back from like that perspective to, I don't know, five years later, 10 years later, where it's run mm-hmm. down, it's broken, it's desolate, and using that fractured timeline to kind of meet in the middle at the end to see exactly what caused that break. Uh-huh. Um, and regardless of what medium that takes, the slowed reverb edgy version of It's a Small World After All is going to <laughs> The minor to key piano I variation. Yes. I want it. I fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. love it. I want to <laughs> yes. yes and the shit out of this. Is anyone familiar with the uh I believe it's called the Wool, like Hugh Howie series like series of novels or sort of short stories slammed together into Mm -hmm. books. I know it exists because Mm -hmm. you've talked to me about it, but I'm not even clear on what it's about. So I don't want to spoil it, but like heavily inspired by this, like in the before the end part, like right in the like utopia is still alive. We think like year 1976 or, you know, like even like 2022, whatever it is, it's like present time. Presented as some sort of, I, I like the, the like 1960s, maybe even like sort of the like creepy Stepford wise, Wives vibe. But is it that year or is this like year 20 of an experiment to like rebuild society as the rest of the world burns? And like, w- you know, you follow either a young person or sort of an outsider start to like touch the edges of the invisible cage and find that the world that they think they're in is not quite what it seems. And then like we cut forward however many years, centuries, whatever sort of makes sense for the story in like after the fall, trying to piece together what was actually going on, sort of a mystery being eaten inward from both ends of time. Okay, so let's... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, What I was going to say, to put like a kind of interesting twist on like either having like an outsider or whatever, which is kind of the standard thing, is what if in the context of this story, it's, let's say it's a family, a family of four or whatever, This new utopian city is going to be built. This family that we follow has been selected to be part of the utopian city. And maybe they're down on their luck. Maybe they're having financial issues. Maybe they're thinking about college or whatever. Maybe they applied for a lottery and were selected. Right, right. Whatever. How they get there is is like a draft two question. But they get there. (laughs) Um, And along with like everyone else, like their neighbors, everyone is new to this utopia that they've been, you know, selected for. And they may or may not have a choice. Some people are like... A little more hesitant, but as they settle in at first, you know, it's a dream. You know, all their needs are taken care of. They never have to worry about food or health care or mm-hmm. education. Oh, yeah. It's all taken care of. But then it slowly starts to seep in that, oh, they don't get to pick their food. They don't get to pick the education. They don't get to pick mm. anything about their lives. Oh, you don't like and apple think- pie? We're really sorry. It's apple pie time right now. So we're having some apple goddamn pie. And I think it would be interesting to explore the conflict between some people who are just 
have come from such difficult circumstances that they're happy is taken care of. They're like, we are not here to bite the hand that feeds us. Yeah. And if, you know, we don't 100 percent get their curriculum that they're showing to little Timmy and Tommy. You know what? That's the price we pay. <sighs> Timmy and Tommy don't pay for the gravy. Exactly. Versus the people who are like, no, I want the freedom to not eat apple pie today. Right. Mm-hmm. And that sort of inner conflict that's sown between, you know, the people who are like, we're happy here. We're fine. Not having full freedom if it means we're safe and secure versus the people who are like freedom at all costs. Every little yeah. minor inconvenience against me is bad. Um, <laughs> Man, and this then, doesn't sound you know, familiar are, at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> and maybe the family that we're following is like kind of in the middle of like, you know, they miss being able to choose certain things, or but they do like having free healthcare because who wouldn't? Yeah. And maybe they are outsiders to this conflict and this kind of internal conflict that the utopia was trying to avoid in the first place is what leads to the internal downfall because the utopia was set up. Everything is taken care of. No one needs to worry and it will be an ideal society. But human nature just doesn't like to be controlled. Yeah. And I'm sure we could explore like exactly what morals would happen or what morals we would want the audience to take away at the end, depending on who wins, who loses, how the how the utopia ends up falling. But I like having a central family that's kind Mm -hmm. of in the middle, either not so complacent that they go along with everything, nor so adamant about self-autonomy that they argue about every little choice that's made for them. Totally. Now, I I love all of that. If we are going still off of the Disney model, which I think that we have kind of, at this point, could either drop or not, but if we do want to keep Disney around, I'd be curious about, like, how extreme could you go? Where it's like, forget living in, like, the city of the future. You get to live in, like, a Disney cartoon. There will be talking animals. There will be, you know, choreographed musical numbers. In which you must participate. Exactly, yeah, in which you must participate. And, you know, in August, you will be, you know, the, like, background street sweeper number 24 and that, like, you know, kick line. But, like, you know, come November, that's your day for your big solo buddy. And, like, you know, everybody gets a turn. Wasn't this an episode of The Good Place? I'm, I'm joking. I'm Look, joking. there's, a, totally there's something I learned watching The Good Place is that everything sooner or later is an episode of The Good Place. Yeah, right, right. Forced musical. Um, very. That... You only have a minute 30, so okay. I want to flag, like, let's, how do you, how do you guys want to land this plane? Well, definitely we're ending it at, like, society, at this inner society falling apart. Because they weren't able to keep it together. Right. Absolutely. I think what we might want to focus on is what does the family do post-society? Are they the ones exploring the ruins of the utopia, trying to figure out what went wrong? Or is a family just like pulling a Malfoy's and they're like, we take no sides. We're leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Don't look at us. We just happened to be around while stuff was going down. Don't even worry about it. Hmm. Interesting. And I mean... I think that the question there for me is, is this a story about people who were there at the time when society kind of brought itself down and have to survive the crash? Right. Or is it a story about the people that like made the crash happen? Because I think that, you know, like depending on that, they either need to emerge as like 
the new leaders, even if that is more of a loose term, or they can sort of be these people that at the end of it are just like, wow, right. That happens. No, that's a great question. I, I am still like kind of stuck on the Bioshock framing. Like, are we coming at this also from like the curious mind from the future that needs to know what happened and is sort of piecing it together and we're getting flashbacks? Um, in which case, are they part of the family or sort of descendant of that group? Or is it somebody completely unrelated or, you know, not clearly related until the very end? I think it could work if, if the series is a flashback and it's, say, little Timmy, who is now in their 30s in therapy trying to process it. Yeah. And they go back and forth. He's not, he's the, not Dr. Timothy, you yeah. know, with his PhD in archaeology. Played by Timothy right. Sheldon. And he's, and yeah. And the reason the story is fragmented is the framing device of him being in therapy, unpacking all of this is sometimes he'll go towards the very end, he'll go towards the very start. So it's scattered because his, you know, life experience is being remembered in a scattered manner. Mm. Well, that's time. But I look forward to Timmy Chalamet uh, (laughs) doing this very, very like Tom Holland wishes (laughs) uh, intense mix of of genre and format bending um bioshock like uh exploratory family drama excellent job guys this was great agreed and with that great idea behind us please 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 will you join me in this high speed chase across our great nation it's a long chase say more are you guys ready for a very fast ride across the country with atlasobscura.com. Is this the end of the cannonball run? I was hoping that this would be what it was. Yeah. You no. said high speed chase across the nation. Great. Say more, though. You know. Um, for a century, a fraternity of lunatics, in quotations, uh, inspired by a driving pioneer of a 1980s movie, has raced across the United States. Is the newest record unbreakable? On a May Day in 2020, a nondescript sedan set out from the Red Ball Garage in Manhattan, its driver determined to take back a piece of history. Departing shortly before 6 p.m., the silver Audi S6 should have encountered rush hour, but the world had closed down due to COVID-19. The mm. sedan hit one stoplight on East 31st Street and was through the Lincoln Tunnel into New Jersey in six minutes, the start of a day-long cross-country odyssey. Drivers wow. Arnie Toman and Doug Tabbitt were out to reclaim the Cannonball Run record, which they'd set the previous November, racing from New York to Southern California in 27 hours. So they were competing against themselves? That's less No, fun. they were competing against the people who sniped their record to get it back. Ah, I see, I see. It's, it's a slow build, but it's, 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 it's a goodie. Um, it had just been broken a few months later. Now on the f- expensive, flat, straight, and empty, thanks to the pandemic, highways of the Midwest, the Audi was able to reach 170 miles per hour in spots. Toman and Tabit pulled into the Portofino Inn in Redondo Beach, California, 25 hours and 39 minutes after their departure from New York City. The race route is not particularly a well-mapped one. How the drivers got from point A to point B was their concern. But they were participants in a contest that dates back more than a century when the smooth, paved highways they used were nothing but a dream. Yeah, it's wild that this quote-unquote fraternity of lunatics does not have, like, great documentation about what they do. Source, trust me, bro. It definitely, yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. Erwin 
Cannonball Baker, the first bro uh, of this lineage, the name race's namesake, uh, was the first of dozens who have engaged in the battle of record breakers and heirs to the scofflaw culture that have continued the race uh, hidden from public views for years. Sorry, I love the specificity of dozens. Like, you know, with yes. like most of the hobbies, it's like thousands of people. With this one, it's like over dozens. the years, dozens of people have attempted this. Oh, yeah. And I think you'll soon understand why, if not already. Um, it seems like the most American thing you can do, Tabit says, drive across the country as fast as you want. For Cannonball Baker, fast wasn't that fast. In 1914, the factory worker turned vaudevillian turned racer crossed the country in 11 and a half days on what was to believe to be the first transcontinental trip on a motorcycle. That itself was speedy. Five years later, a U.S. military convoy crossed the country on the new Lincoln Highway. It took 58 days. Mm. By 1933, thanks to advances in roads and automotive technology, Baker was able to cross the country by car in a supercharged Graham Page Blue Streak in a little more than two days, 53 hours and five minutes. Wild. Baker remained an influential figure in the racing world for decades. One of his last roles was as the commissioner of a new stock car racing circuit, NASCAR. He died in 1960, but when another iconoclast was looking for a namesake for a race, he looked to Cannonball Baker. As a writer and editor at Car and Driver, Brock Yates tilted at windmills, railing against the gross point myopians that were stagnating the American auto industry and the specter of highway speed limits. Yates was an advocate for graduated driver's licenses, which would grant different privileges for different skill sets. One size didn't fit all, he believed, and more intensive training would allow the United States to create high-speed roads like Germany's Autobahn. Quote, this was when people took driving seriously, says his son, Brock Jr. Good drivers could traverse long distances at high speed safely. Thanks, Brock Jr. I'm just going to hold on to Brock Jr. for a little while. <laughs> So good. Yates was determined to prove it, so on a drizzly May day in 1971, he and Steve Smith set out in a Dodge van they named Moon Trash 2 and accented with <laughs> a wing that probably did nothing but cut down, did nothing to cut down on wind resistance and probably even created more. Brock Jr., 14 at the time, was brought along as a navigator. That's right, Brock Jr. was involved. Uh, a runner oh, no. for snacks during fuel stops and a lookout to try and spot police cars that could potentially pull them over. They set out from the Red Ball Garage, so chosen because it was open 24 hours, and completed the race in 40 hours and 51 minutes, ending at, ending at the Portofino, which was already established for a haven for racers at the time. And so we go on to learn more of this arms racing of speeding sure, across sure. the country. Basically, when the world shut down in 2020 and the nation's highways looked enticing to potential cannonballers, it just was an unimaginable set of circumstances and led to just like an insane number of people just beating each other consecutively right, right. at this race because the clouds parted or the cars parted as right. exactly and so uh <laughs> so yeah these these two gentlemen finally snagged the 25 hour 39 minute mark just as the world began to open back up um, all right all right boylan who's married with a child and mostly retired from road racing sees the 25 39 mark standing for a long time i don't think it'll get any faster because i don't think the world will turn off the highways ever again he says at least i hope not and with that hope, 
I give y'all right, set that timer. 10 hours on this here clock. 10 hours. Luxury. 10 hours. Oh, we can make it to Kansas City. Yeah. No, 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 guys. I've got a pitch. I've got okay. just four words for you. Mm-hmm. Kasparov versus Deep Blue. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I see. I see what we're doing. Is Elon involved or are we going <laughs> to no, leave no, him no. out of it? No, no, no. And I don't want Elon anywhere near this. But you have this guy. Let's call him. It could be anything. Let's just uh, pull a name out of my hat here. Brock the Third for no reason. <laughs> Um, he is the world's best cannonball runner. He, you know, like does it in 25 hours. People think that he's unbeatable until they trot out his new opponent, a self-driving car that is going to attempt a cannonball run. Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. And they both Mm -hmm. set out at the same time. And, you know, who can do it better? You know, the man or the machine who can speed across America the fastest. Right, and this plays into sort of our, because self-driving cars are kind of programmed to obey all of the laws. That's right, and, but Brock the Third sure isn't. Right, but if if this struggling self-driving car corp, uh, we can call it anything. Let's call it... Uh, Bestla. Wesla. Bestla uh, is the best drive. <laughs> Um, can prove that they have a car AI that can make decisions in the exact same way as humans. Mm -hmm. It'll be gold, baby. Um, And so this AI is erratic. It's unpredictable. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't, it does, it ignores the laws of man. (laughs) Well, you could go that way or you could go with the argument of like, no, like the car still needs to, you know, follow the rules as written but the car, okay. it's got GPS. It knows where there's going to be traffic. It's connected to the cloud, like, you know, and the car the don't car, get tired. Right? It's it the knows. perfect driver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure, 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 sure. Um, I'm happy with either of these directions. The thing is, the AI can know all the laws of all the individual states. So it knows when it can just scoot under the laws. That's like right. The, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, can I interest mm-hmm. you guys in a stake raise? Yes, yes, please. So what if it's a little further on in time? And all the police cars are self-driving. Say more. Okay. And so we're cannonball running in a time where if you can dodge radars, you can kind of get out scot-free because nobody's actually looking because nobody maybe wants to be a police officer anymore. And like for whatever reason in this world, people are doing this every year. It's not dozens, but maybe not everybody makes it. But every year they organize it on Telegram. They figure it out. And so they're off to the races, but there's one strange car leading the pack that the Mm -hmm. spotters keep seeing. And one of them gets a good, clean shot when they finally slow down in a speed trap to see there's no one behind the wheel. So, Mm -hmm. like, are the powers that be, like, entering the competition? Like, oh, I like that because then let's say it gets, like, halfway through the race. Like, the first, maybe third is just... Everyone is racing. Everyone assumes Brock the Third comes from a legacy family. He's going to knock it out of the park. And then this mystery right. driver in this sleek, beautiful car. With tinted windows. You can't see windows. inside. That's right. Just, Absolutely just not. Just smashing yeah. the competition. And people start gossiping and rumors start spreading. You know, I heard he's actually secretly the Prince of Denmark. Oh, I actually heard he's married to an oil baron. <laughs> yeah. And then these rumors start flying. And then the second act is them trying to track down who it is. And then they realize, they realize it's no one. And then the question is, who's behind it? Is it like the law that's like flagrantly breaking its own law for some perverse reason? Well, this is my question, right? Is are there, are there, is there a pot? 
right? Or is whoever right. What's the prize? Whoever wins the race is the person who can call an, another race or something like that. Hmm. Like, what is the end goal here besides the record? I think it's more interesting if it is just for glory because if yeah. the prize is like, you know, X amount of bajillion dollars, then, oh, the millionaire did it because he wants extra millions. But if it is just for the glory and Brock the Third is participating because he wants to keep the glory in the family and the legacy. It's like, sure, what sure. does this AI have to gain from glory? Do robots need glory? Is the person behind this seeking to steal the glory at the finish line? And I think maybe as in the second act, as we switch from, oh God, this is an AI too, but who's behind the AI? Oh, Who, who's the guy in the office that's controlling it? I love it. I love it. So so I, I hadn't considered the possibility that this was a sentient self-driving car and that mm-hmm. like basically one of the pol- like old police vehicles that is an automated system gained consciousness. And at some point, like when it's restraining bolt got taken off was like in a place where it was like that race that just like because my rules were so stupidly like scientific I couldn't chase down these racers and I knew I could go faster. And I saw it like I, I knew when I was free, I would enter that race. And at some point, one of the spotters that's like one of the people who's like too young to race themselves has contact with the car. And it's a little bit like a how to train your dragon moment where it's like, huh. right, like, like, is it a person? Okay. Like, but there's nobody in there. Like, what's going on? And, and so it's like the friendship between this young, younger person and this self-intelligent car. Is this the heartwarming tale of friendship as as Brock the Fourth, the the <laughs> tagalong navigator? Doesn't want to be doesn't want to follow in his dad's footsteps. No, he what he wants is just to be a kid. And he sees this cool car that's just having an adventure for the fun of it. He's not he's not glory hounding. And he's like, no, Dad, Brock the Third, I, Brock the Fourth. <laughs> I'm here for friendship. Right. And there's a whole lot of like family pressure on Brock the Fourth mm-hmm. of just kind of, you know, mm-hmm. like the Brocks have always been the ones that like break these records. Like our, you know, auto detailing shop is built on the fame of, you know, like we're the ones that do this. It's very, very important. It's very right. expected. But Brock the Fourth, he doesn't care about winning. He cares about the true spirits of it, about the freedom of the open road, baby. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't have the needs for speed. He just wants to enjoy the journey, man. The real glory was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> right. Oh, I love it. Uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you can have the scene early on where it's like, you're a disgrace enough just being a spotter. Like, you should be in the car. But I guess if you're just not going to participate, it's better than nothing. And of course, by, by the end of it, there is like that scene where, you know, like the AI car now with Brock the fourth <laughs> yeah. inside it is like barreling towards the finish line when something goes wrong and like his like optic system gets knocked out. And so he has to rely on Brock to like spot Mm -hmm. him and guide him in. And it's only through that collaboration that they're actually able to win together. Take the wheel, Brock. Because they're such good friends and so in sync. Exactly, yeah. Take the wheel. Teamwork makes the You know I can't take the wheel. Please, we must survive. This ended up being much more heartwarming than I expected it to be, honestly. Yeah. I'm surprised, but in a nice way. Well, there's a minute left on this year timer. Are there any other set pieces? Do we want to go into the character motivation for anybody? Do we have a name? What is a sci-fi um, way to say glory? Valhalla. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit post-apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to sort of incorporate the race in here somehow. Like, 
um, Valhalla Speedway. The Valhalla Run. Hey. Yes. The Valhalla Run that sounds, sounds pretty, pretty sexy. I love that. I think we've got a name. A bunch of Mad Max fans. Oh, the kid could watch Mad Max on the infotainment system of his automated friend. Mm-hmm. Real uh, mm-hmm. witness me energy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Hardy can be Brock third. It'll be great. Cool. Cool. Who plays the car? Paul Ooh. Bettany. Oh, no, no, no. No, the timer just went off, but it's definitely an Apple TV program. And so it's Siri and we'll take all your money. Thank you very much. Apple, that's time. (laughs) I don't know. I don't don't know. I don't know if I like how you got corporation all over our pure. (laughs) It's your friend, Gabrielle. It is your friend. (laughs) This is what happens. This is what happens. Oh, it was it was too heartwarming for too long. We couldn't have that's it. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, we are going to uh, take some deep breaths and uh, process our grief of living in a corporate hellscape and be back uh, with more after this. Hello there, Zach Valenti jumping into this episode with this brief reminder that we have an active Patreon page to support the production of No Bad Ideas and all the other crazy worlds we're building behind the scenes. To check that out, scope the sweet rewards we offer for monthly subscriptions as well as how to sign up yourself. Head on over to nobadideaspodcast.com support. Once more, that's nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. If you already support the show, we so appreciate that. And regardless, thank you for listening. All right, let's get back to more No Bad Ideas. We are delighted to be back with the lovely Leslie Gideon. Thank you so much for playing our silly game. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, we're super excited to have you. We uh, are living in a world where New York post- podcasters no longer get to meet up and hang out anymore at bars, which, which is our very hearts. sad. Um, so this is this is a good proxy for um, for all those uh, podcast meetups. Uh, at Slancha, where we would talk about our various shows and writing and whatever else. And before we got going, you brought up an interesting topic that you kind of wanted to bring to our virtual bar space. Uh, and so do you want to do you want to ask us stuff? Yeah. So especially for y'all who have been writing professionally and doing things for a while, as well as having passion projects on the side. I wanted to ask y'all and, you know, get into the weeds of how you approach writing for, you know, fun, for passion projects or side projects versus writing when you are on somebody else's dime, when someone is expecting a certain product out of you um, and how you approach those two kind of different creative mindsets. We keep smashing the sellout button as hard as we can and it keeps not working. And we're not <laughs> sure what the problem is. It must not be hooked up correctly yet. It's the staples, just like... Gabrielle. I keep telling you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. Sorry. 
<laughs> this is a very interesting topic. Um, and I'm only just thinking about sort of like, because you're right, there's sort of a different mentality at work when you have um, a client or or someone that you're writing for, but it's not all the way different from when you're writing for you. Speaking for myself, I find that for better or worse, when I am on the hook financially for a product, the deadlines tend to work a lot better. Mm -hmm. Now, I kind of treat stuff that isn't explicitly being paid for, but like is being expected by one of the other two folks on this call of the the hosts um, that uh, the pressure of looking bad is kind of what has things get delivered. And obviously the amount to which it solves the rent problem is even more incentive, which is a shame because like, I definitely find that many of my own ideas end up in the would be cool pile as opposed to the have been written pile. I'm curious how that factors in for the both of you, Gabrielle and Sarah. I mean, so there's like a lot of dimensions here. And you know, and like, I think that we've talked about this before. I don't remember if we've talked about it on No Bad Ideas, but we definitely kind of talked about it in uh, some public-facing things. But there's kind of a recurring joke in a lot of our long story short meetings where we quote a little bit of Romeo and Juliet at each other, where there's kind of like a scene where in the fifth act of Romeo and Juliet, Romeo goes to see the apothecary and he's kind of saying like, hello, I am here and I am extremely distraught. I would like your most potent, most deadly, most fast acting poison, please. And the apothecary is kind of going, it's the middle of the night. You're like this like teenage boy with this like crazy look in your eyes. You're going to do something bad about that. Like, I don't want to sell you these poisons. I don't want to give you these drugs. And Romeo sort of, you know, gives him this like slightly crushing, like dressing down where he's just like, do you remember that you live in squalor? Do you remember how crushingly poor you are? I have money. You have a service I require. Shut up and take my money. And the apothecary kind of gives the line, my poverty, but not my will consents. And Romeo sort of shoots back. I pay thy poverty and not thy will, which is one of those like, OK, arguments over. Great. We're moving on. And, you know, we have sort of often talked about like, you know, when are we doing something because they are paying our poverty and not our will? And, you know, and I think that absolutely, Zach, like there are a lot of ideas that we've talked about doing for years. Uh, certainly a lot of things that I have in notebooks that like I would love to do that just kind of stay there because the choices are oftentimes, well, can we find the thousands of dollars that it would take to do this? And in the meantime, also figure out how we are making money separately from that in order to be able to find the time and the effort and the concentration in order to make that happen? Or do we perhaps focus on something that is, look, like, I don't think that we've ever sort of done anything where we're like, uh, aside from my jokes about selling out earlier, I don't think that we've ever done something where it was like, and that was the corporate show. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we've definitely sort of in the past made the decisions of like, the thing that we're going to do this year is time bombs, a thing that is short and fast and sweet and requires like very little other people besides the three of us versus this idea that maybe we love. But we're like, boy, that is going to be something that is like huge and time consuming and can't be done quickly. Um, so, no, there is absolutely some like deathly calculus in there. And there is a little bit of just kind of like that balance of like, where can we serve our poverty and where can we serve our will? 
I'm curious about that for you, Leslie, because you uh, have have written lovely things that have originated from you, and you have also written awesome things for other shows. Everyone, go listen to the Arden Halloween special. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is terrific. Yeah, I think for me, part of it is when I'm on the clock writing for a client or writing for, you know, expecting a, a paycheck or some sort of stipend at the end. There is this kind of, for me, a kind of pushing aside of the ego of like, all right, it, it doesn't matter. This does not need to be, you know, the next great American classic. This just sure, needs sure. to be a story. It needs to be cohesive. I need to get it done by the deadline. Of course, I'll, you know, polish it up, if get feedback, do other drafts. But all of that is ultimately in the service of getting product A, which is my writing, to client B. Um, right. And I have kind of joked about this with other podcasters of being more business minded than I think the average creative is. So mm -hmm. when I'm writing for someone else, there is that kind of like, all right, is the story serviceable? Is it, you know, at the 80% threshold of like, I feel comfortable putting this out in the world. Whereas writing purely for myself, there is a hundred percent that ego that is harder to let go of. Like for the path down, that was a very personal, very important story for me that I felt I had to share with the world. And there is that almost kind of internal pressure of if I make another story, if I create another thing, it has to be worth all the effort. It has yeah. to be an capital I important capital S story. Whereas it's easier to write for fun when it's for someone else, because mm -hmm. like this is a fun story. I probably have a framework to work off of, whereas creating for the self with the expectation of, oh, this is all purely coming from me. And there is no guaranteed return on this investment. It's a little harder to get outside of my head and be like, just tell a story for the love of Christ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I relate to that. No, and I think that, you know, as much as we do all love sort of that like sense of be free, creative, do what you will, write the story of your heart, sing the song of your soul. <laughs> I do think that we don't often talk about how liberating it is to at least I find it to be somewhat liberating, absolutely, aside from kind of the responsibility metrics, that there is kind of this sense when you're writing for someone else, when say, like, I've been hired to write for another show, and they give me an episode, they give me an assignment, they tell me what to do. There is, for me, something kind of wonderful and liberating about, man, if I fuck this up, somebody smart is going to see it and be like, yeah. no, 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 you need to fix that. Like, that's not going out the way that it is. And then its own way, like that, I think, like encourages you or at least it encourages me to go for like the big swing. It encourages me to kind of do like, I'm going to try out the weird thing, because if it passes muster for these like smart people that have hired me, then I think that like, you know, I feel sort of comforted about that. Whereas I feel that we are often much more somewhere on the scale between cautious to timid when there is the sense of like, no, we are the last arbiter. We are kind of the only ones judging. Is this capital I important enough? Is this capital S story enough? And that's sort of like, you know, is its own, it's its own sort of set of pitfalls. Um, we keep saying, you know, it's absolutely true that like a smart enough person can convince themselves that anything is a bad idea. Like a smart enough person can pick apart yeah. anything, no matter how good it is and kind of be like, no, no, no. That's, you know, that's derivative and that's, you know, like the structure doesn't tie up as nicely over here and this should kind of be a little bit more of that. So it can be sort of nice to sort of be in a headspace of like, I don't need to 
police myself in the totality of this. I just need to kind Mm -hmm. of do my own little job within this bigger machine. Yeah. And there's something kind of it, it, it reminds me of fan fiction a little bit of like, you haven't had to do all of the world building. And like you have, usually you have like some marker for what this should sound like, what the voices should be like, what the tone should be like a a lot of sort of the decisions that are agonizing have been made for you already. Um, And so it means that you can kind of let your brain go in different interesting directions or you can just work faster. I find that I work faster when I'm on assignment than when I do. And, you know, it's just me. Absolutely. I uh, 100% agree with that one. I hear the voice of our manager in my head being like, but, but, but when you write it yourself, you own it. And the game in Hollywood is to own what you write more than just get paid for service. So I don't know if that's something, Leslie, that you give much bother to and how that sort of sticks in either of your craws, Gabrielle and Sarah. For me, I am less focused on generating IP in the way that, you know, like, the big names like Paul Bay often advocates for some people join podcasting to do. For me, it's more writing with the aim of like, I'm not aiming to be, you know, the next corp IP creator. I just, I would like to be in the writing room. I would not want to be the head writer, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is less of the issue for me. Whereas um, kind of to tie back what Sarah was saying is like, when you're writing for someone else or you're writing fan fiction or the story that you're creating is essentially fan fiction, like the Halloween special for Arden. We were essentially playing in someone else's world and putting a fun little spin on it. There is that kind of rapid freedom of the hard work has been done and the hard work will be done by other people. Whereas for me, the main the main craw is you create the story. Yes, you own it, but you also have to own it. You every own part of it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's like being an adult. No one can stop you from eating cake. But no one can stop you from eating the cake. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the trick, as in all things, is trying to find like what the healthy balance is for you. Um, And it's different for every person. I think some folks really want to be on sort of the leading edge of being creators and like having new shows. And we're a little bit precious about sometimes we have been in the past about like we need to make something new every year because we need to get reps in and we need to we have all of these ideas and we need to make them. But, you know, I think for for everybody, it's a little bit different uh, how you want to balance sort of the time commitment and what time commitment is even feasible to work on your own stuff versus going out and sort of seeking work for higher opportunities. The tricky thing is, is that like one probably necessitates the other. And I know that like I would not have gotten a lot of the jobs that I have done in the last couple of years if like I hadn't been involved in making time bombs and zero hours and unseen and stuff. So it's it's it you kind of need to be able to do both. But I think we all have sort of different preferences for what we would most like to be doing most of the time. Yeah. And I think that for me, the thing that makes sense in terms of how to approach that and how to approach that question, Zach, of, you know, you want to do things and you want to get paid. But the big thing is you have to make it yourself so that then you can get paid with all A's and all I's and all D's and all P's capitalized is, you know, I think that you approach it a little bit with that attitude 
that some people describe about like how they work in Hollywood of kind of, you know, like one for me, one for them, you know, I'll go and spend two years doing the remake of whatever action movie. And then, you know, like, because I did that, they'll give me the money to go and make sort of, you know, like the little indie thing that I really want to do. And then I'll be back just in time to do action movie two, action harder or whatever. And I think that like, you know, that's a little bit the attitude that I approach some of these things with. Like, you know, there are absolutely some ideas that I'm like, that's for the notebook because I want to do it. I want to kind of, you know, like have that world and I want it to be ours if we ever make it. And I want to just kind of be like very much in control of that. Um, and, you know, and we even spoke a little bit about this when we were making Unseen for when we were doing the Kickstarter for Unseen rather about a year and a half ago of like, look, we've been pitching ideas to companies for going on four years now. Unseen was not pitched to a single living soul because we were like, this is one that we need to make ourselves. We've been pitching a lot of other things. And, you know, and like right now I'm writing a series for Audible that once they write my last check, it will be, you know, thank you. Please never bother us again. Like you are now <laughs> done. Goodbye. See you forever. But I'm hoping that, you know, the money that that provides will buy the time to spend a little bit more time developing something from the notebook. We'll maybe even pay for, say, like a pilot episode or a couple of episodes or even a project on its own. So I think that it's like a little bit about, I know, like I'm very much describing something that is like nice work if you can get it. So just yeah. kind of, you know, like developing your own stuff while also pursuing other opportunities. But I think you try to do both. I think that that is kind of like the way that you do end up having to approach it. And there was a fantastic thread. I just remembered that um, Ella Watts, friend of the show, Ella Watts, put on Twitter a couple of days ago. Oh, yeah. Where was she was talking about, hey, people that are making podcasts. Just some awareness, just so you know, if you make an audio fiction show and you put it out there and you put it for consumption out there, you are burning any possibility that somebody will pay you to make more of that podcast. You know, if you make season one of your show, no one will ever approach you and go like, that's amazing. That's a great show. I want to pay you so that you can make season two of the show because they'll want to kind of own the rights to it. They'll want to sort of get involved in the ground floor. They'll want to be able to control things from the beginning. They'll want to be able to define things about the show. So it's just not going to happen if you start putting things out there. Does that mean don't put anything out there, never make anything on your own? Absolutely not, no. because that is how you grow. That is how you get better as an artist. That is how you develop your own stories. That is how you end up kind of being able to tell important stories with those very clear capital letters but it just kind of means like go into it with eyes open you know sort of know what is the thing that you need to hold back and find partnerships for what is the thing that you need to put out there and know that whatever form you're putting it into the world as that is likely where it's going to stay and that is likely what it is going to be and i think you kind of manage the awareness of all these things at once yeah, it is a juggling act. And I know I've spoken to different podcasters about this before, about balancing, you know, the desire to be capital C creative and tell stories from the heart and connect with others through your storytelling versus trying to at least recoup your losses or, you know, break yeah. even on yeah. your Indiegogo or your, you know, uh, fundraising campaigns and balancing the two. And then, you know, you add in on top of that day jobs, you add in people who have families, who are parents and juggling all of that. And it is that that balance of, you know, 
the idealized creation process and the joy of creating stories and bringing stories to life. And I know for me, a lot of podcast stories that I've either participated in or that I've consumed have been life-changing for me. And also balancing that, that pure artistic intent with the fact that we have to put food on the table. We have to take care of ourselves physically, mentally, take care of our families if we have them, our day jobs, our other responsibilities, and finding the balance between the two and finding the balance between writing for hire and creating for money versus, you know, maybe that one side project that you do have that is just purely for you and for fun versus, you know, creating for yourself with the caveat that you might be expecting to sell it. And it's it's a balancing act and everyone approaches it very differently. Absolutely. When I think about this stuff, especially about writing, I get the voice of uh, one of my old teachers from college, which just eternally has to say one word to me, focus. I'm curious when you think about the projects you've been working on in audio fiction, Leslie, like what are the things that like have been the North Star from like before you got started that have kept you going? And then maybe what are some of the things you've like discovered along the way that you couldn't have known to want um, if any, if there's anything at all there? Yeah, it's interesting that you say focus as, you know, a kind of guiding principle, because that's definitely something I've been reflecting on in the past few months of, you know, especially after wrapping up the path down, there was that kind of feeling of what's next Um, to kind of tie back to your question. When I first started podcasting, my my kind of goal was to slowly work my way up. And I've told the story a few times before, but to kind of summarize, I was thinking, you know, I want to voice act. I'll buy a Blue Yeti. I'll get super small roles. I'll Mm -hmm. work my way up. Um, Climb that corporate ladder. Yeah. And as some of y'all know, it didn't quite work that way. Um, I auditioned for The Van as one of their side characters. And by sheer luck, the stars aligning for me, Ali Montawani reached out to me and said, your voice is going to be perfect for the lead, which, you know, never happens. Never expected that to happen. That was the first role I auditioned for. And they offered me the lead, which was like, okay, I was planning for this to be like a year three thing. And this is happening week one, which did kind of throw that North Star thing into disarray. It's like, oh, this thing that I thought I was going to have to grind for has been given to me by the stars aligning, by the fates and all that. And then from there, entering podcasting, I knew I wanted to create a story and I wanted to write. Um, As I said, the path down comes from comes from a very personal place of grief for me. And I wanted to explore that story of grief in the long term. And that was that was my long term North Star project of um, getting everything together, creating a script, learning how to run a production. And I spoke to so many people. I worked with so many wonderful actors so many consultants and it was a whirlwind ride and I enjoyed every second of it. And then once it was over, I had that, again, that moment that I had after the van of, this is the thing I've been wanting to do for years and I've done it. What's next? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of between wrapping up the path down and now has been a lot of contract work, a lot of guest writing, a lot of collaborative work, a lot of voice acting. As much as I love discussing writing and the creative process, I consider myself a voice actor before a writer. So a lot of my focus has been on expanding my work from beyond audio fiction podcasts to audiobooks, which I've done a few now to um, indie video games to hopefully expanding further beyond. And that's where 
a lot of my focus is now. But as some of y'all know, acting is kind of hit or miss. You know, it's feast or famine. When it's good, it's good. When it's a Sahara desert, it's a Sahara desert. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you kind of have to wait it out. So in terms of having that focus, like you said, that North Star, it's I've been doing a lot of reflecting and soul searching in the past few months to try to figure out what is the next big thing? Do I need a next big personal thing? Or is it okay to just keep steadily progressing in my career without necessarily having to share another big capital I important story? So to answer your question, I don't have an answer yet, but I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> that sounds like the perfect that's awesome, place to though. be. No, that's terrific. And like, yeah, like, I mean, that is such a unique story, but I think that it is also so emblematic of like the way that everyone's story in podcasting kind of does in many ways boil down to I went into this not knowing as much as I felt I should. I got opportunities that just kind of like threw me into the deep end. And I've kind of been like furiously dog paddling ever since. And just kind of like trying to figure out what is kind of like the next step forward. What is kind of like the next way to cross the next wave that's coming this way. Um, I think that's how so many of us feel that have been like working on this, even like after years of working on it. Exactly. Because that is... That is the eternal question. What's next? Yeah. Well, folks, um, this conversation, I think we could keep going forever, um, but I think we need to move on to what's next um, in all of our evenings. So we're <laughs> going to very reluctantly tune, turn it in for the night. Um, but Leslie, thank you so much for being here, for playing our silly game with us, and then for giving us, I think, one of the most thoughtful and interesting conversations that we've gotten to have in this show in a good long while. Um, so thank you so much for being a guest on No Bad Ideas. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been so much fun and very insightful. Um, I also just miss talking to all of y'all. I think I said Gabrielle once in person in the past two years. And then Zach and Zara, I haven't seen since the before times. So this has been fun. Seriously. Far too little. We'll correct this soon. But in the meantime... Where can people go to listen to your things? Where can people find your creations? Yes. So if you want to follow me and my voice acting, um, it's also Black History Month. So I've been posting a lot of articles and resources. If you'd like to, you know, follow up on that and learn more about what you can do, um, you can follow me on Twitter at the Leslie Gideon, all one word. If you'd like to listen to The Path Down and learn more about that, you can also find that on Twitter at The Path Down and find that wherever you get your podcasts. I also have a limited run soccer history podcast. It happens to be yes. a World Cup year. So yes. if you want to brush up on some fun soccer stories, you can follow that at Sideline. You can follow that at Sideline Tackle and whatever you enjoy. Hope you like it. It's all tremendous. We highly endorse it here at No Bad Ideas. Leslie, thank you once again. And dear listeners, thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with more No Bad Ideas. This has been No Bad Ideas, produced by Gabrielle Urbina, Sarah Shackett, and Zach Valenti. Many thanks to our patrons for their partnership in making this show happen. And a special shout out to our idealist members, Jennifer Schneider, Rena Sarame, Jeffrey Felsher, and Dia. Today's episode features music by Statesher and Jazar from freemusicarchive.org. You can support the show at nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. And if you love this show, please leave a rating or review wherever you listen and share it with someone you love.